Hello. Hi. How you doing? Yes, it's The Film File. The film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And roll music! And we're back with another episode of The Film File, your friendly neighbourhood film show. You know, for the inner film geek that's, well, it's in all, in all of us, isn't it? Let's be honest. Oh, I hope you're well. <laughs> we're doing fine. So, Andy, how are you doing? Doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm still not getting out of the house as much as I intend to. I'm still trying to get that motivation. But every time that I wake up thinking, I'm going for a long walk today, I look out the window and it's raining. And then days when I've got things planned, like recording, <laughs> like today. beautiful out at the moment. <laughs> it's gorgeous, isn't it? It's a bit cold, I'll so, be honest. The weather is working against me in trying to get fit and healthy before I return to work. But I am getting there mentally and immersing myself into uh, quite a lot of films and activities at the moment. It's been quite an active week for me. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I've been, I've just been busy. I, I don't know where the days have gone the last few days. And, uh, of course, back to school for the kiddos, uh, which is useful. Yes. And that's why oh, we... It uh, frees up so much time. Yeah, it does. And uh, I, I was back in, because I'm teaching a film course at the moment, so I was back in in college. I just realised there's some students I'd not seen since last December, before we broke up, uh, which was, it was weird. It was it was a bit of a, a head change. I was in for one day, uh, the first day back in January, and that was it. But it does kind of feel like there's a sense of confidence to the first filming job I've done in a year since, well, a year ago which was, again, weird just to get out, out there. And it felt felt kind of normal. Some kind of normal. Wow. <laughs> which was a John Hughes uh, film, I think. Yes. It's also it's also a census time in the UK. Have you had your code through to fill in the census? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Um, mine landed today. So apparently, if it hasn't arrived by tomorrow, you can go onto the website and request another code getting sent through. So keep a lookout for that. Okay. Uh, so it's that time again where we have to declare what our religion is and try to avoid the temptation to put Jedi. I know, it's such an easy it's one. Just, the thing is, everyone who does it thinks, oh, I'm so funny, I've put Jedi. It's like, yeah, you and about four million other people all thought of this hilarious joke at the same time. Well done. I wonder if Eternal <laughs> will work in, you know, in, in lieu of the upcoming MCU film. When I could say I'm an eternal. Oh, that's an interesting one. I wonder if some people are going to put down uh, uh, the cult of Snyder. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, we've it was International Women's Day yesterday. Yeah, and it was. It was great to see like discussion online around all the positivity of like women within the industry and the films that the people asking, "What's your favourite?" Filmed by a female-led director, and yeah, point break. Sorry, it always, always has to win. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? But on the same day, where we had a very toxic community having a go at um, Meghan and Harry. So when when if it, it's International Women's Day, let's celebrate women. Women, but as soon as a woman says that she suffers from depression, put her down. Yeah, I've I've I've, I've avoided all that. I have little interest in in sort of royals. But I, I avoided it like the plague. I've seen the discussions going on. As I sit here, emails pinging around me, but I've, I, I've just avoided it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a royalist by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that what is happening at the moment is abhorrent. Abhorrent. Yeah. Wait until, wait until the seasons of The Crown get up to date with what's going on, and then we'll get the truth. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm going to be waiting for that one. Uh, what we aren't including in this week, even though there is a nod somehow to the crown in one news story, we'll be looking at our deep dive into The Predator and the subsequent sequels. We'll have reviews of films, including 
coming to America. But before all that, yes, you know it's your favourite part of this show because Andy has been trawling the internet so you don't have to. Going into probably some of the deepest and darkest recesses that are out there just to bring you this sequence that we call The News. Film release dates, shuffle is taking place again. Yes, it's that time when all the film companies start going, hey, jostle for space, jostle for space. Uh, let's start off with Peter Rabbit 2, which is actually opening earlier than what it was originally planned. Really? Now, in the UK, it's not really affecting much because it was originally planned for mid-May anyway. But in internationally, it was planned for mid-June and it's now moved to mid-May. So a bit of confidence there. And The Quiet Place 2, which had been shunted to September this year, is now the back end of May this year. So it appears that Sony and Paramount have a lot of confidence in the reopening of cinemas in the coming months. That is good news. It's actually, that is it's celebratory news because it was only a couple of weeks ago when we were still doubting anything would happen in May. But as I said earlier, there, there's this sense of confidence that's starting to creep back. I mean, I get my... I get my vaccine next week, so by the time we do the show next week, I'll be uh, I'll be a mutant. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm going to get some superpowers out of this. I'm begging that it's flight or invisibility. I, I, I don't mind either, but it, it, there is that sense of confidence. As I said earlier, I've been out filming again, and and people are starting to take bookings and starting to look at the year ahead with this newfound sense of this is where we are and this is this is how things are going to be moving forward. So as long as we don't screw it. I think we're going to get a chance to start seeing some movies much earlier than we anticipated. Universal aren't as confident, however, and um, Fast and Furious 9 has clearly hit a roadblock and is now going to be delayed a month, moving from the back end of May to June the 25th. And Minions Rise of Gru, which has been delayed over and over again, is now coming out July 2022. Yes, it's been put back another full year. Now that can't just be because of the pandemic that's got to be that they are really not confident on this film and they are really struggling to find a, a nice place to drop it where it won't have too much competition if that's the case then it's uh, it's a surprise that they didn't go to vod i wouldn't be surprised with the amount of moves that that film's done i would not be surprised if four months from now they decide to cancel any cinematic distribution at all but i think the straight to video on demand is still it's still waters being tested and some have been successful and some haven't. So I think that there's still some trepidation in making that shift, especially for a high profile name like Minions, yeah. because the Despicable Me and Minions franchise have been money earners, even though they've not particularly been great films since, well, the first one was great. After that, no. Yeah, I agree. Uh, speaking of Fast 9, more spin-offs for the franchise are planned. Of course. I still must get into them. I've only ever seen the one movie I saw with you, which was uh, Calvin and Hobbes, Hobbes and or something Shaw. like that, wasn't it? Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes go uh, <laughs> move into second gear. I, it was something now that, like that. that. That's a crossover I want to see. <laughs> the producer, Hiram Garcia, has been saying, I think it's not so much about separating or anything. They all fall under the umbrella of Fast and Furious, the Fast and Furious universe. And Fast and Furious is the mothership, but obviously the franchise is so beloved and has so many fans, and there are many stories to tell within it. So one of the spin-offs is clearly going to be the sequel to Hobbs and Shaw, because that film, it performed enough at the box office, and so that will be going forwards. What other ones are going to spin off? We don't know. We've already had an animated series. Have we? Yeah, there's an animated oh, okay. series spin-off, which uh, landed on Netflix, I believe, back end of last year. And at the same time, Heron Garcia has also confirmed that there's another Jumanji film in the works. I was quite enamoured 
when Jumanji came back for the modern generation and did that step over into video game aspect. They did it so well. It could have fallen completely. And most people had the knives out and were ready to hate it. How dare you? I I agree. I think people were ready to dislike that movie so much and were so charmed by it. It it made all the money and it deserved to because it it worked on every level. It was smart. It was funny. It it didn't lose sight of where the game came from. Uh, uh, It was great. I didn't see the the, the follow-up, though, I must be honest. The follow-up was more of the same. I think that it lacked that spark of imagination that that initial one had. I think they were just kind of treading the formula and trying to work out where to expand it. Whether they will change the formula for the next film or whether they'll keep it as the retro video game kind of aspect, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if if the game morphs again and becomes a VR kind of experience and so goes a bit more high-tech in the action-adventure. But I'm still on board enough. I think that the characters were fun. I'm quite looking forward to seeing what they can do with the franchise. Uh, I, You know, if they they move the way that they're moving and... They can reinvigorate it without the missteps that other reinvigorations and reboots have done. I think I think there are there are. It would be nice to see a new cast rather than going back to that cast. That was probably the the one thing yeah. that stopped me wanting to go and see the follow up because I thought that those people had told their stories and I didn't need to see them again. Anyway, I've got a little bit yeah. of news. So what I you got for us? told you there was going to be a tie in somewhere to the Crown, and the Crown's Emma Corrin, who has already played one of the world's most famous women is now to play one of the world's most famous fictitious women and she's on board to star in a new version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Mustang director Laurie de Clermont uh, Tonnerre is to bring to life the DHS Lawrence uh, classic. If I remember correctly there's been numerous versions, a TV version, uh, yeah. uh, a very soft smutty version and it's about for those who don't know um, a woman who is married but finds herself engaged in a torrid affair with the gamekeeper on their English estate. and um, Played by Sean Bean in one of the adaptations. That's how I remember it. Yeah, it's always, <laughs> always a little bit steamy. Depends how steamy they go. But Emma Corrin is on board. There's always room for a fresh adaptation of any of the classics. After the reports of the decent opening for Tom and Jerry that reported last week, Raya opened for Disney this weekend in another split onto home streaming and onto the big, big box office at the same time didn't perform as well at the box office as Tom and Jerry did. Even though it's got great word of mouth. Yeah, and given that Tom and Jerry was free to HBO subscribers, whereas Raya, you had to pay for on Disney Plus on top of the subscription, it's a bit confusing that it then performed weaker at the box office compared to what Tom and Jerry did. It might just be the simple fact that Tom and Jerry are a lot more more well-known. Yes, it's a recognised... Every generation recognises them. So it would have been adults like ourselves going, Tom and Jerry. My kids don't know Tom and Jerry. I could take them to go and see Tom and Jerry. Whereas Ray Air is a brand new franchise that I don't think Disney have really, really heavily publicised. I, I mean, I think you may have hit the nail intrinsically on the intrinsic literal head by saying <laughs> the fact that you had to pay uh, an extra for it. And I still think if you're already paying for Disney+, Plus, and this is the reason I've not watched it yet, I don't want to pay that extra little bit of money for it because I know yeah. in two or three months it's going to be going to be aired for free. Um, I love what they did with soul. I thought soul was the perfect way to do it. And we saw it with Mulan as well. And, yeah. and that's why that failed. Okay. It wasn't a great movie, but it did fail because you, you had to pay the extra subscription. Um, I don't mind paying, say paying more to see it in a cinema, but if I'm already paying and 
Disney Plus has gone up. Um, I don't want to pay any anything else. But saying that, if Black Widow launches that way, they, they've got they've got my money. Take my money now. <laughs> it it is possible that the negativity that surrounds this whole premium pricing on Disney Plus is putting people off even going to the box office to pay normal price to go to see the films that they're trying to fleece their subscribers about. We we won't know. The true test will be something like you say a Marvel property if it gets released the same way. That's when we'll see whether it is a flawed model for Disney to do this or whether it is just not a recognisable name. Speaking of Tom and Jerry, some viewers of HBO Max this like this past 24 hours, literally on Monday, got a bit of a surprise when they pressed play on Tom and Jerry after thinking, let's settle down with the kids and let's watch this uh, charming semi-animated tale of uh, the madcap capers of, oh, that's Superman. Oh, there's Batman. <laughs> I, thought you might, I thought you might say there was a, a big mousetrap because that's how I seem to remember, <laughs> the big mousetraps. Apparently, someone, when they've uploaded the whole lot of Justice League onto the service, ready to go live when it's due to go live in just over a week's time, uh, mapped out some of the programming wrong, and Zack Snyder's version of Justice League started up for some viewers yesterday. <laughs> HBO Max say that they reacted quickly to take it down. There's reports from some people online who were watching it, who said that they managed to see just over an hour of the film before it suddenly froze up, cut off, and then when they tried to restart it, it started Tom and Jerry. Now, I mean, that that's a, that's a proper faux pas oh, to drop is. a bombshell like that. Somebody's off the uh, HBO Max uh, Christmas card list this year, aren't they? Oh, definitely. Uh, since it dropped, the conversation around it online, with particularly with the fan base, has been a bit bizarre. Okay. They've been making claims that Warner Brothers have done this deliberately to sabotage the film. So I'm trying to work out the logic here because really, accidentally leaking the first hour of a film sabotages it. Surely that would only be the case if that first hour was a piece of garbage. Can I can I just stop you there, Andy? Because I think you used a, a word that, that kind of sullies your argument and that was the word <laughs> logic. Um, and... and and in relation to to fans and logic, I think that's where I might have just just have to pull you up on that one because I, I've seen some very <laughs> toxic uh, uh, twitters going round uh, this week uh, regarding WandaVision and and logic's not not a big player in in some of those arguments. Yeah. So I I might have to just rein you in on trying to use that term. <laughs> if I if I use a similar analogy comparison to it'd be like if I started playing on Disney Plus the Simpsons movie. And accidentally, they'd uploaded the French Dispatch, and I got to see an hour of the French Dispatch. Would that upset me? No, I'd be really happy about that, and then I'd be so buzzed about it that I'd be telling everyone, I can't wait for this film to come out, and getting hyped. Nope, the Snyder fans are going, they're trying to sabotage it by letting people see bits of it early. <laughs> so you're, you're admitting that it's a bad film then, and no one wants to see it in that case. You're you back to logic it. there, Andy. I'm going to pull you in. <laughs> You've gone back to logic. But also, guess whose name cropped up a lot in the claims too? Uh, it would be Ray Fisher, would it? Yes. Many of the cults are now saying that this accidental leak was clearly done to detract from the fact that the cyborg-specific trailer for Justice League is due today. So they a day early, they showed an hour of a film that he's in to make people not want to see the cyborg trailers today. I mean, it wasn't to distract from Wonder Woman on International Women's Day or anything. No, it's purely to distract from cyborg. Walter Hamada must really have it in for Fisher if he's now <laughs> actively sabotaging something that he isn't even a part of the control of. He has nothing to do with HBO Max. That's someone else's territory. I'm telling you, they make their own their own graves, basically. What, ha what good has come of this, though, is I've seen a lot of the more toxic Snyder fans who are so disappointed that they might find spoilers 
spoilers online over the next week before they get a chance to see it, that they've now said that they're not going to use Twitter or social media for a week until they get a chance to see the film because they don't want it spoiled. And I thought, excellent. Twitter's going to be a lovely place to live this, <laughs> about this next week. <laughs> yeah, there you go with logic again, Andy. I'm, 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 you know, if there's going to be an episode <laughs> title, it's the logic show. It would make me want to see it even more if I, uh, if, yeah. if I was really excited to see it. But I, I can't believe there's that many people, unless there was a, uh, a couple of people just ended up going on Twitter going, get to Tom and Jerry now. <laughs> uh, that have that have uh, been released. And of course, it's. Um, do we still know if it's got a UK release yet? Because I'm, I've done some digging and can't seem to find where it's turning up yet. And in the UK, I've still not seen anything confirming where it's turning up. But I have seen mentions that a few other HBO Max projects will be dropping next week on paid premium services such as Amazon, iTunes, etc. I imagine that they'll be part of the same drop. I would imagine so. Um, as I said, I uh, had a little bit of extra input when we we're talking about Disney Plus, and this is a film that's been getting all the great reviews. Uh, I know very little about it, apart from it's directed by uh, Chloe Zowie, who directed and wrote The Eternals for for the MCU. Her film Nomadland is coming to Disney Plus in April with cinemas to follow. This has just been getting. Uh, well, it's leading the Oscar conversations right now. It's been getting great reviews. Really looking forward to it. And if it's dropping on Disney+, Plus, then I can't wait to see it because it sounds as though it's something a little bit special. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to this one. I've read a lot about it, but I've not read into it because I don't want to spoil any of the film-going experience. My only disappointment with the drop being at the end of April is it's going to drop after the Oscars. And I do like to try to see all the films nominated yeah, for yeah. major awards on the road to the Oscars. And we had this discussion online and one person was like, yeah, but Parasite came out after the Oscars. And I was like, well, no, it didn't. It came out two days before the Oscars last year, but it also had advanced screenings in cinemas two weeks before the Oscars. Yeah, and that's how you get a chance to see it. Cause I saw it two weeks before it came before the Oscars. So I had a chance to go and watch the Oscars and genuinely say, I've seen all of these films. I would choose that one, but I think that one would win. So it's disappointing that I'm not, I've not got any opportunity to see this film. Because with cinemas closed, there won't be any of those special screenings. So every week we've managed to mention something about Stephen King. And this week, there's another Stephen King story with some pretty tasty names connected to it. So it's a project for Netflix. Uh, Steven Spielberg, who has been passionate about bringing this to the big screen, or to any screen in this case, for some time. And that's Stephen King's work with Peter Straub and their book, The Talisman. And he's been trying for 35 years to make it as a movie. Then it was talked about as being a TV miniseries. But at least now he's managed to gather a team to actually go ahead and make it. And the good news is he's teaming it with the Duffer Brothers who bring us Stranger Things. They're aiming to bring this to Netflix. So I'm, I'm guessing a Stranger Things starts to wind down with this new season. Uh, will be getting the talisman as a kind of a replacement for it. It's a fantastic book. I never read the sequels uh, and I didn't go into the Dark Tower stories, but I really did enjoy the talisman. Great book. Looking forward to seeing it. And it feels like it's in such good hands. Yeah, it's been it's been a project that's been kind of bandied around for a film adaptation oof, since the 90s at, at the like at least. Yeah, well, Spielberg bought it when it first came out. It came out in 82, I think, yep. the book, and he optioned it then, so... He's been with it, but yeah, there's been films, been miniseries of the works. It's it's never managed to get off the ground because it's such an ambitious project. Going for a TV series, as soon as they announced it was going to be a TV series, it was like, this is going to happen. This is happening now. It's happening. I'd like to think that if this is a success, 
Um, it has got some close ties to the Dark Tower series. It would be interesting to see if it then greenlights a TV series adapting the Dark Tower properly because that has now hit a stumbling block again. So that's not going to be happening, which is a shame. It is. Kalinda Vasquez is penning a new Star Trek film for Paramount and Bad Robot. Isn't she on board Discovery? Uh, is Kalinda Vasquez one of the the staff writers for, for Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, wrote one of the recent uh, Discovery episodes that focused on Michelle Yeoh's character. Uh, she's also worked on Walking Dead, Prison Break, Nikita, Once Upon a Time. There's no details of what the Trek movie is going to be. Is it going to be a direct sequel to what we've already seen from Bad Robot? Is it going to be another timeline? No one knows. But it does show that even though the most recent movies weren't the huge hits that Paramount expected, they still feel that there's enough life in the concept to greenlight another big screen outing. I, I love the Abrahams Star Trek movies. Star Trek Into Darkness was poor. The first movie I thought was great. It was yeah. uh, a great way of building the mythology back up. Really enjoyed Star Trek Beyond. It felt like a Star Trek episode. Yes. I was disappointed that, that they didn't carry on the franchise with that particular cast because I thought the cast were fantastic. I wasn't sold on the cast until I got a chance to see that first film. I thought that you know most of them were okay, but I, wa I wasn't sold on Simon Pegg until I saw him in the role and saw that he wasn't just trying to emulate uh, James Doohan version of Scotty. He was putting his own spin on it, and that made me love it. But you've got to give a, a lot of love to the interplay between the, the, the Holy Trinity, as I call them, <laughs> Kirk, Bones, and Spock, because those characters were nailed perfectly. And that's why I liked Beyond more so than, yes. than Into Darkness, because it was about those, those relationships, and, and it just felt... As I said, it felt like a classic TV episode. Marvellous. So, more Trek. Always happy with more Trek. Uh, for the other Star franchise, Star Wars. So, Star Wars Episode Nine was originally going to be made by Colin Trevorrow. That's right. And had the working, t working title of Jewel of the Fates. And then, once he was kicked off it, the whole film was redrafted, rewritten, chopped, changed. And what we got in the end was a completely different film. Well, there's a graphic artist novelist uh, called Andrew Weingamer, who's been working on adapting the original script that Trevorrow had into a seven-part comic book adaptation, most of which is already free online at his the artist's website, a awinegarner.squarespace.com. He does he's doing this all unofficially. He's not getting paid to do it, so that's why he's releasing it for free. He's got hopes that now that he's released the first couple of issues of artwork, Marvel will go. Tell you what, we'll release this officially and we'll release it as a non-canon piece to complement the Marvel series that we've got going. We don't know, but if he can't get that payment for it, he will just continue releasing it for free so that he can't get done for profiting of something he doesn't have ownership of. Yeah, I, I, I hope him well with it, because I, I love the Dark Horse adaptation of the Star Wars, the original George Lucas piece. Um, let's hope uh, he's got a good lawyer. Yep, because uh, we know that Disney do come down hard on um, copyright issues. But fingers crossed he's managed to work, work out a loophole in this one. Sticking with Disney, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going to provide the voice of Jiminy Cricket for the new Pinocchio movie. I, I'm looking forward to this, A, because I like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And yes. I really like uh, Cynthia Erivo, who's going to be playing the Blue Fairy. And I think she's she's fantastic. She was, she was amazing in um, the Stephen King adaptation of, of The Outsider. And so... She's one of those those actors that I just want to watch in anything. So uh, again, <laughs> looking forward to this. Uh, I know this. It's it's a it's a Disney production, so you know it will look fantastic if it if it doesn't all yeah. gel 
uh, interested to see it. I mean, the whole cast lineup is pretty good. You've got Tom Hanks as Geppetto. You've got Luke Evans as the coachman. Uh, you've also got Keegan Michael Key as Honest John. Lorraine Bracco's in there as Sophia the Seagull. Young Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, who was the lad in Flora and Ulysses, is voicing Pinocchio. And it's it's Bob Zemeckis. And I do quite like the energy that Bob Zemeckis brings to films. Shooting is starting later this month here in the UK. Art drama Rothko has started to cast, and what a cast, Russell Crowe, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, the great and much underrated, I think, Jared Harris and Michael Stuhlberg are all joining in for that particular movie. Mortal Kombat. Oh, well, I knew you'd have to mention it because uh, I-, I finally watched the trailer since last week's show. Man, it looks violent. <laughs> yes, uh, they've confirmed that it's going it's to be bloody and gory like the franchise should be. It won't be having all the deaths that the game series is known for because... It'll be a bit ridiculous for every character to have the spine ripped out or be decapitated or pierced with like sabers and whatever. But even better news for fans of the series is that the Mortal Kombat theme tune, which wasn't the theme tune of the original games, it was the theme tune used for the original film. Okay. Is staying in there. As soon as you say Mortal Kombat, you can guarantee someone who's a fan will go. Techno Syndrome is the name of it, and there's a new variation of it which has been used for the theme tune because the makers of the film went, look, it's so synonymous with the franchise now, even though it's never been linked to any of the games, that the fans kind of expect it. I'm so buzzed for this film. This is this is a film made with me in mind. They made it for me. I think they've had a picture up in their office of, of, of you saying, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to see it. There'll be a dedication at the beginning of the film for Andy Meakin. <laughs> One film that's not been made for me is uh, the Space Jam sequel. I was never a fan of the first no, Space Jam. No. If you want to see, bring the Warner Brothers characters back, then Looney Tunes Back in Action is, is the much better film. Yeah. Now... There's been a fair bit of controversy over the past week as more and more things have been released. One of them involves Pepe Le Pew is not going to be a part of it because a scene that was shot quite early on in 2019 with the movie's first director. And that's where I start to get worried when something had a first director and then a second director. Um, But Terence Nance shot a scene that they hadn't put the animation to that had Pepe Le Pew in. But the character has been kicked off because um, in recent years it has been highlighted that he's quite a negative element that adds to rape culture. Um, and so it's a bit of a con- controversial character. But the biggest controversy, apparently, is the redesign of Lola Bunny. Okay. Because she's been redesigned and the reaction, particularly from the male fans, has been, well, her boobs are smaller. So she's uh, she's been redesigned, but she's less sexualized. That's what we're trying to say, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, surely when you want go to see a film about cartoon characters playing basketball, what you really want to do is get some horn over a cartoon <laughs> rabbit. If the children listening, because... the auntie did use that line in a <laughs> sentence. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's a cartoon character. It's been redesigned and it, it looks, it's a great redesign. Uh, all the characters have had tweaks and changes to them over the years. They never look like they did two generations ago. Stop thinking there's something wrong with a cartoon rabbit having smaller boobs. If that's your mentality, just stay in your mum's basement and just never venture outside. Talking of venturing outside, 
Uh, the Russo brothers have ventured out of the Avengers Endgame. See what I'm doing here, uh, mm, market yes. to bring out Cherry, which comes out Netflix, I believe, this week, and they work yes. it into the world. Uh, their next piece, where they're reteaming up with Marcus and Feely, the uh, Mike Feely, who wrote uh, the Avengers and Captain America series, to bring us a thriller called The Grey Man. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago because Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans and Anna Diarmas are, are there. But they're now adding to the cast Billy Bob Thornton, Alfreya Woodward and Reggie Jean Page from Bridgerton, who has been muted as joining the Black Panther cast. Don't read anything into it, but it does sound interesting. The Grey Man is based on the debut novel by Mark Greenley, published in 2009. It's an action-adventure thriller that follows CIA agent turned assassin as he's hunted across the globe by a former cohort at the CIA. Page has been linked to so many projects over this past few weeks. He's, he's definitely one of those names on the rise. Yeah, he's the one to watch, isn't he? If the only one so far of this year... Uh, and I've not watched Bridgerton. My uh, my other half did. Uh, she swooned at it in all the right places. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think it's he's got a, a number 10 on the swoonometer right now. Let's round off the news with something that made me smile. And that's Ted Lasso Season 2 has added Sarah Niles, who's going to be playing a sports psychologist brought in to help the team after the relegation of the previous season. Season 2 is in production at this point in time. And Season 3... Is already greenlit. That made my day. Makes me smile and I'm happy by that already. And that's the news. Enjoying the show? Let's hope so. Uh, And if you're a regular listener and you've not subscribed, then please do so. Very easy to do. Just hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. If you're new to the film file and you're enjoying what you're hearing, just become a part of the family. Come on, welcome you in. Next time we'll make you a cup of tea. If you want to drop us a line, you can do so at... On Twitter, at FilmFileUK, on Instagram, FilmFileUK, or email us, podcast at FilmFile.UK. And thank you for the feedback we got last week for the uh, artwork that we put up. And uh, (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. Anyway, as you know, it's deep dive time, and we're going deep, deep, deep into the jungle. We are rescue team, not assassins. Now, what are we going to do? In a part of the world where there are no rules. We pick up their trailer, the chopper, run them down, grab those hostages before anybody knows we were there. What do you mean we? Deep in the jungle, where nothing that lives is safe. You lose it here. You're in a world of hurt. Showtime, kid. Knock, knock. An elite rescue squad. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. (laughs) Is being led by the ultimate warrior. We need the best. That's why you're here. But now... What's got Billy so spooked? There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. They're up against the ultimate enemy. Holy mother of God. Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. She says the jungle just came alive and took him. We cannot see it. Blood, no bodies, we hit nothing. But it sees the heat of our bodies and the heat of our fear. Whatever it is out there, it killed Hopper. And now it wants us. It kills for pleasure. Ah! He will skin the lion! It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. We're all gonna die. But this time, it's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, 
can kill it. This week, our deep dive is not into one film, but into a series of films, starting with the 1987 American sci-fi action film directed by John McTiernan and starring the man himself at the height of his power, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that film is Predator. And boy, <laughs> do we have love for Predator. Andy, I mean, you've watched this recently. Yes. Probably more so than I have. Before we talk about it, has Predator, the first film, held up? Yes, very much so. I popped this on every few years. And when I popped it on this time, it was like... Like I tend to do when we're going to be talking about it on the show, it's like, okay, I'm going to put my critical head on. I'm going to see if there's anything to not like about the film. But, man, this is a film that was written on a script out of pure testosterone. It's packed with a cast that eat and drink testosterone for their meals. (laughs) And it's a pure, unashamed macho fest, and it knows it. From the muscle off between Dutch, played by Arnie, and Dylan, played by Carl Weathers at the start of the film, to lines of dialogue about being a goddamn sexual tyrannosaur, or not having time to bleed, it could be easy to write this film off as pure, dumb action fun. And it is, but it's the kind of pure, dumb action fun that's just perfect. It's utterly immersive and engrossing. The characters are what make this film. Even though they're all meatheads, you kind of like each of them and you kind of root for all of them as a result. You don't get to meet them for a long period before they start getting picked off one by one. But you genuinely care for this group of Marines sent in on a a mission to extract. And that's where the film is smart. It's the way that it sets up. Yeah, I mean, as a plot, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastically simple plot. Uh, a spacecraft flies near to Earth and releases an object which enters the atmosphere. Sometime later, in a Central America uh, beach, Dutch, a retired Vietnam veteran, played by Arnie, and his elite mercenary rescue team are tasked to rescuing a foreign cabinet minister and his aides who have been held hostage by insurgents. So you've got this one half of the film, which was a kind of very, very typical archetype of that particular 80s period of being this uh, all guys together action a kind of buddy war movie that then moves into the science fiction territory and it does that so well and that's why it works that's why it's still a classic by having that seamless introduction of the predator uh, and making what probably the hardest men on the planet suddenly become the victims and that's where the fun begins there uh, where no matter how much firepower these guys have no matter how much testosterone they're carrying around in their huge muscular forms they can't beat or initially can't beat this this almost superhuman alien killer. As the film was originally called The Hunter, he does a, the Predator does exactly that. He hunts them down. The concept for the Predator stalking them and taking them out one by one, it is pure slasher horror movie concept, but given a sci-fi spin because you have the faceless killer that you don't actually see for most of the film. You just see quick glimpses of, and it's only towards the end that you get to unmask the killer. This is a horror film, first, sci-fi, second. And so the characters are important. The marvellous design work of the creature itself by Stan Winston has to get a shout out here because what a great concept. Um, Apparently, he got the idea for some of the design from it from a conversation he'd had previously with James Cameron when he was working with him on earlier films, uh, particularly the mandibles that the Predator has on his face. Yeah, it's an iconic look, and it's an iconic look that... 
that's, that's why it's so popular. I mean, if you don't get the creature right, then it instantly becomes a, a forgettable film. There's been some great science fiction horror movies, but to have a memorable villain like that, that could be plastered all over T-shirts, you can make action figures of, you can have models of, then that's when you know that it works and it, and it has... It, it just carries that iconic legend to it. I mean, the interesting thing about this film, it was uh, it started on the back end of a joke that was circulating around Hollywood that since uh, the end of Rocky Four, who was Rocky Balboa going to fight next? And and it was joked that if we had him fight an alien in the fifth film, um, that would would take it into an entirely new area. And and scriptwriters Jim and John Thompson basically took their inspiration from that joke and wrote the screenplay, which was originally called Hunters. And, but I think it's it's the fact that Joel Silver was behind it, who was at that point the biggest mega producer, who knew how to how to make great action movies. That and working with John Mike Tiernan, who's just brought, as he did, and this was his, his kind of showcase for, for Die Hard, brings a, 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 a comic book humour to it, uh, which is never campy. Uh, and just in the same way that Die Hard has got some, it's got some real laugh out loud moments of it and strange offbeat jokes in it. This works as well because of that. And, of course, the fact that you've got Arnie, who was at the top of his game, the most recognisable star in the world at that particular point. It, it was destined to good things. It nearly went astray very early on with the design of The Predator when Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, had been originally cast to play the creature and went on an, uh, an intense training course and he would bring his martial arts and his physical action to it and, and to make The Predator very agile and almost ninja-like. but it, it didn't really work, and and it, it became more apparent that he wasn't phys physically imposing enough to take on people like Schwarzenegger and Weathers, and then they recast it with the same actor Kevin Peter Hall, who played uh, Bigfoot in Harry and the Harry and the Hendersons, uh, who at seven foot two had that imposing, if not the, the huge physique, which was made out through the modelling, but the size to be able to look down on those big guys. And it is just a film that is a time capsule of the period that it was made. But because it works, it, it doesn't matter when it came out. Uh, and like any great film, it had to create a franchise. And then we went into Predator 2. So Predator 2 shifted the events to 1997, which at the time that the film came out was the future. And for me, I remember when I first saw this at the cinema. And even then I was like, oh, that was a bad move. Because in order to make things look near futuristic it's things like bolting extra attachments onto guns for no point at all which have no purpose but it makes him look futuristic guns don't transform that much over a 50-year period let alone 10 years and the film looks dreadfully 80s as a result and when i say dreadful i mean it looks cheap and nasty like a low-rent robocop setting rehashed for a monster movie the film takes more influence from the robocop franchise than what it did from predator because it tries for the political satire aspect, echoing the LA riots of the time and playing out the idea of gangs versus cops to the extreme and an in-your-face news station getting the satirical dirt on everything. It kind of forgets that it's supposed to be a Predator film, aside from it being really hot. Everyone is very sweaty in this film and there's an invisible monster. You see, I'm the opposite. I really like Predator 2 and I think it was the worthy, it's a worthy sequel, uh, the way that Aliens does, by, by slightly shifting it in, in another direction. Uh, I like the LA setting, and I, I get that it's only ten years after. Nineteen ninety-seven is is a very different nineteen ninety-seven than what we remember about Los Angeles. 
But I like the fact that the Predator is now in, in the concrete jungle. And, and I know it, it, it did only moderately at the box office and it got generally mixed reviews. But I quite like the fact that they did something very, very bold with it. And they expanded on who the Predator is and, and you know, tying it in with the Jamaican and Colombian drug lords. Uh, I thought that the casting of Danny Glover was great. I know they originally wanted to get Schwarzenegger back. There's even talk of Patrick Swayze as the lead, but I think the casting of Danny Glover gives it that sort of hard, almost noir edge. And the fact that uh, I've got an ex-girlfriend who's in the movie makes me like it that little bit more. But I, I've really got a lot of love for Predator 2. I've not seen it in a long time, so I know it's going to look dated, and, I, and I'll take all that on board. But I thought the fact that they did something different, I thought it, 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 was, a, it was a bold sequel that, nearly almost nearly gets there i have no qualms with it shifting the setting to an urban setting it's the tone of the film is so different to the original film it just doesn't feel like part of the same franchise at the predator itself bizarrely attacks in partly invisible ways for some reason all of its weapons end up on full show when it's attacking because it wants to showcase off the effects more than anything else it forgets that it's supposed to be the predator hunting people so why would his spear be visible floating in the air as he's about to attack makes no sense and the predator itself seems to be quite fond of being seen this time around every time someone spots his strange shimmering he stands there and is pretty much just stood there going yeah okay keep looking at me keep looking at me and then we'll deliberately jump ahead so that someone else can see them i don't get the aspect they were trying to show off the special effects more than anything else i think that's where the problem is cast are great danny glover is fantastic he plays that grizzled aging cop routine perfectly and he, he fits well in here bill paxton plays a smarmy yet strangely charming and heroic character which is just bill paxton yeah as and he he's, was. he's severely underused and i would have loved to have seen more from him gary Busey plays well gary Busey. let's be honest he just plays himself in every film and it's got all the cliches of the action genre because it doesn't do anything new it doesn't do anything original it just regurgitates all the staple cliches of the genre action genre that it's trying to do i get what they were doing that they were trying to do what alien and aliens did that the, there were two different kind of films different approaches one's a horror one's an action film but i don't think it quite worked as well and it was probably more because stephen hopkins might have been a bit out of his element i mean this is the guy who gave his nightmare on elm street five he didn't have a good track record. It would be a few years later when he gave us Judgment Night, and that's when I suddenly went, wow, this guy's actually got some potential talent. Let's jump ahead now to 2010, to when you mentioned Predators 3, and I scratched my head thinking, I don't remember a Predators 3. Of course, there was the film Predators. This time follows an ensemble cast of characters again, uh, with Adrian Brody in the lead as Royce, a mercenary who appears alongside a group of other proficient killers in an unidentified jungle. They find that they've been abducted and placed on a planet which acts as a game reserve for two warring tribes of extraterrestrial killers, and they actively look for a way to survive and hopefully return to Earth. Uh, produced by Robert Rodriguez, uh, directed by Nibrod Antal. This was a, a surprising take on the Predator story, and the fact that they've, with each film, a little bit like Alien itself, they've gone in a completely different direction. It kind of underwhelmed at the box office, but I've got a lot of love for this one, again, because I think they did something different with it. Rodriguez produced this based on a script that he'd written back in the early 90s when he was working on Desperado, because he was pitching to try to make this sequel, and it took almost two decades before he finally got a chance to see it visualised. 
And he saw it as a film that would ignore the second film, but would be a direct sequel to the original. And you can see that in it. It's, it starts off with a jungle setting, and it's only after about 20 minutes that we suddenly get the reveal as like, this isn't Earth. We just thought it was. And that's when it starts to play with the mythology. It builds up that there's different kind, different clans and tribes of predators that aren't necessarily working together. It whole, has this whole aspect of not just humans, but also beasts are getting captured and dumped on this planet as a hunting ground for anything that's a, a natural killer. And whereas the first film had, like like I've mentioned, the cast of characters were all likable. You kind of took to them. You wanted, you rooted for them. You get to learn over this film that all of these, these lot are selfish and quite nasty people. And it adds a different spin because there's not just the aliens hunting them. You don't quite trust each other. And they're trying to band together, but one or two of them basically would kill you while you're asleep. There's a great cameo in this by Lawrence Fishburne, which unfortunately, as good as the cameo is, it breaks the film down a bit in the middle and it slows down the pacing a slight bit. It drags on a bit unnecessarily. And I read stories that apparently they wanted Arnie to cameo in the film. And I wonder whether this was supposed to be the role that Arnie would have played because he's playing someone who's been captured by the Predators and survived for many, many seasons of hunting against them. And it would make sense, especially when you see the traps that Lawrence Fishburne's character had set up. They are the same traps that Arnie was setting up in the first film. I think that is is true. I've read a very early, I've read two versions of the script. I've read the Rodriguez one and I've read the rewrite by by the writers who ended up getting credit for it. And uh, Rodriguez always did want to bring in uh, Arnie to to replay Dutch. And, And I think if if memory serves me right, you uh, you you're spot on with that. But it's it's a lot of fun. It's um it, it adds more to the predator mythos. Um, I don't think it feels out of place with with the second one. I like the idea that it's set in a jungle again, and it I like the fact that it it gives you familiarity and then does something absolutely unique with it. And uh, it's a shame that it, it didn't become a, a a bigger hit. I know it did okay. But um, it's a shame that it just wasn't wasn't the hit that it that it deserved to be. Because unfortunately, after that, that and now we have to move on to the Predator, which I haven't seen because you talked me out of it. <laughs> even though I am a huge, absolutely huge mental uh, Shane Black fan and Fred Decker fan, so I'm going to let you rant now. <laughs> I covered the Predator in a lot of detail in one of the early episodes, and I think it's also on the compilation of Just the Reviews number three when um, you can hear the full review. But the biggest problem with this film is I'm a huge Shane Black fan, and it was clear when watching it that Shane Black had been reined in a bit and he hadn't had full control over this film because it feels disjointed. It feels like a mess of ideas. If I was to say that I didn't like Predator 2 that much when I rewatched it, Predator 2 would be a 5 out of 5 film compared to The Predator which would be a two out of five at best. That's how bad the film is. It tried to be funny and failed. It tried to have great action moments, which didn't quite work. They were they were really hidden in dark settings. There's no consistency to the story. And it tries to be really clever towards the end with a like a big mystery item that's been found and discovered. And when it opens up and it's like, oh, we're setting up a sequel. And that's where it lets itself down in the same way that the recent Terminator films have all tried to be the first part of a three-part series and failed by forgetting they're supposed to just be a film on their own. The Predator 
suffers from franchiseitis. It wants to be a start of a new franchise. And in doing so, it lays out so many little nuggets that it will never pay off. A mess of a film. We should uh, bear an honorary mention to Predator versus Alien or Alien versus Predator, depending on, on whose team you're on. Uh, I quite like the first uh, first one by one of your directors that you actually enjoy his work, which is uh, Paul, Paul W. S. Anderson. Um, I think it's much maligned. It clearly, clearly is uh, a B movie with the idea to to rip off. It does more harm, I think, to the Alien franchise than it does to the yeah. Predator franchise. It worked in in some ways that it was set in a uh, a, a setting where they were trapped and the characters couldn't get out of. I think there was a lot of interesting moves with it. There were some points which kind of just really let it down with some of the mythos, like how long it took took the uh, the face huggers to 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 grow and in inside its victims. But I I, I didn't hate it. I, I've not got a lot of love for it, but it, it felt consistent. And you know, it's not the first time you've had horror characters team up and, and fight each other. I'm looking at you, Universal, with Wolfman okay. versus Vam- uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it does have its moments, and, and there's there's more to it that I like than I than I dislike. But that then leads us into Requiem, which I think I think anybody would, would could, couldn't put their hand up and say they liked. I remember when Requiem was getting trailered, and everyone who I knew was like, oh, this looks amazing. And I was like, have you seen the same trailer as me? Because that looks like a dark mess. And it turned out the whole film was just a dark mess. You can't see anything. It's so poorly shot. It's It tries to go for the bloody and gruesome as opposed to the scary and chilling. Yeah, I'm not going to talk much about Alien vs. Predator Requiem except to say that what a disaster. And I'm so glad that they never got any more Alien vs. Predator films to take it any further. It is just an embarrassment, isn't it? It's had a mean streak to it and a black sense of humour, which which didn't pay off. It makes it makes the first Aliens versus Predator look like an, an absolute classic by comparison. And you're right, it was it was a, a great job that it that it ended there. But it seems that the whole Predator franchise is not dead, as there's talk of of it coming back in in some some new form. Yeah, much like any of these uh, great sci-fi monster series, there will always be someone looking for another story to tell and the comic books and novels that have spun off from the franchise shows that there are stories to tell but it needs a studio to have the confidence to let a story be told without interfering it appears that the fifth predator film is to be directed by dan trachenberg who, who brought us actually the great uh, uh 10 cloverfield lane and this has been muted has been set in the american civil war so an interesting premise. And I think the thing about The Predator is it has a history and you can play out at any point in, in, in Earth history, whether it's the past, the present, or even the far-flung future of Los Angeles, 1997. So that's The Predator series. You can't keep a good Predator down. Unless you've got like an electro mesh net. <laughs> <laughs> Andy and I have had a chance to review some of the films that have been uh, making their way to streaming services over the last uh, over the last week, and we're going to start, I think, Andy, with a look at talking about bringing a franchise back from the death coming to America. The sequel to Coming to America. I am King Akim Jaffer, and I believe you are the heir to the throne of Zamunda. Yes, my son. I shall bring queens to Zamunda. He's supposed to be Prince of Wakanda. Wakanda is a fictional place. Not everybody. I'm a king. I'm a king. 
What a grown ass. How much child support she getting? The king pays no child support. No child support for 30 years and you came back? You was a dummy. <laughs> Coming to America, March 5th, rated PG-13. I quite liked this. I quite liked the fact it was great to see Eddie Murphy back in, in a role. I don't understand why we saw it. <laughs> and I think that's the case of, of, of bringing back franchises that were bigger, big 20 odd years ago and, and are brought back now with the idea that there's gonna, they're going to find a new audience. But I, I thought it was fun and it made me smile as opposed to make me belly laugh. Though it was full of uh, fan service, uh, every cameo felt well-placed. I, I was just great to see Eddie Murphy back in a role that, that I could engage with him again because he, he did go off the path. I managed to see Haunted Mansion a, a couple of days ago uh, and he, when he went through his his, his family-friendly stage. But it, it was just full, full, perhaps too much of fan service. But I thought it was enjoyable. I, I don't think it was a classic and I think it'll be quietly forgotten after... After it's hit, and it did really well in its opening few days on Amazon Prime. But I just thought it was it, it was a smiler. But I think you might think differently. Yeah, I mean, when a sequel, which is set decades after the original film, takes a moment halfway through to jokingly mention that decades-old films don't need sequels, you know that they're in trouble. It's almost as if they got halfway through shooting, realized what a botch job this was and thought, hey, let's be all meta and acknowledge it and thus look like we meant to make a bad sequel. That was the point of the film that I went, you know exactly what a stinker you've got on your hands and I'm just going to let it fly over me. The film's set 30 years after the events of the previous film and with the reign of his country now in his hands, Eddie Murphy's King Akeem has pressure on him to find an heir. Apparently all the messages about being able to change old traditions that were learnt on the last film were forgotten pretty swiftly, as none of his daughters can have the task due to not being male and not being married. Uh, when he discovers he has an Ill illegitimate child from the unseen and never referenced at all moment in the last film, when he did actually have sex with someone, which happened before the point in the film where Semi had moaned about not having had a chance to sew his outsider, despite the fact that this new retcon shows that he clearly did. But anyway, he set off to America to find him and bring him back to learn the role as heir to the throne. Cue a rehash of all the moments that you loved from the first film with scant few laughs and a chunk of celebrity cameos about three decades out of date. When Salt and Pepper got wheeled out, I realised this film was struggling. Did you find that with all the cameos and all the, all the little um, guest stars and... Uh, and, and all those all those points coming in that, that kind of Murphy got a little bit sidelined every now and then and it, it, to say that it was his own moving. Yeah, it, I don't know whether it was a deliberate intention of Eddie Murphy to just basically shoehorn in all the things from around the era of when he was popular. But as you say, it kind of like pushed him to the side. And I'm not saying that there's no great things in this. I did smile at a few points but I didn't find myself laughing as much as I did on the first film. And I watched the first film two days before to remind myself of that first film. And I still laughed out loud at quite a few moments within that film. I love the fourth wall breaking that it does with looks of the camera when things are ridiculous every now and then, which they tried to do on the sequel. But it, when I say that they did it with a dog looking at the camera breaking the fourth wall at one point, that's where they decided to force it. And some of the ideas in this sequel seemed a lot more interesting, but were never used. Wesley Snipes. I have to talk about Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Before you do, uh, apparently he played everything straight, and that's what makes Wesley Snipes so funny in this for me. It is brilliant. He gets to play a warlord of a neighbouring country with a perchance for theatrics and musical numbers. 
And you get the feeling that if it had a, the film actually had a focused just on the rivalry between the two countries and played with that idea a lot more and didn't resort to the rehashing the same destined to marry X but fall in love with humble Y story that is clearly being forgotten anyway, the film would have been much better. Snipes is magnificent in here. He is menacing <laughs> but ridiculous at the same time. He waltzes in and out of the film so swiftly that you're sadly left speculating whether there was actually any point casting him. But you enjoy that brief five minutes of screen time that he has throughout the film. I didn't love this film. I found it. Whereas the first film, when I rewatched it, I found it engaging, charming. It entertained me. And I think that I'll go back and rewatch it at some point. This second film was immediately forgettable. By the end of it, I was like, well, it's out the way. I, I'll agree with that. I think it missed uh, a lot of a lot of Murphy's charm and his magnetism that made Coming to America originally work so well. But there were just moments in it. The nice use of fan service, even though it was overused with the too many cameos. Uh, I there was a strange uh, big dance sequence uh, to Prince's Get Off, which left me scratching my head. But it, but it was warm and it was a, a nice, enjoyable way of literally killing an hour and a half and. Um, without feeling as though I'd been burnt. A worthy successor to the original? Perhaps not. But if you wanted to, you wanted just to get through your day and have a smile, I can recommend it for that. Andy, you're going to be talking about a film now that I reviewed a few weeks ago, uh, which was the new take by Robert Zemeckis, the Roald Dahl classic, The Witches. Yes. Uh, so I remember when you watched it and you reported on it on the show last year um you that weren't that was? taken with it yep you weren't you weren't that taken with it i wasn't no i've got to be honest i i thought it was i thought it, everything about it was over egged uh, and what was lacking to some extent the same was what was lacking in coming to america was was heart and charm and i thought while it had the potential to have it it threw almost looney tunes style zaniness at it in a way that what i wanted was was charm and and this is an example where we're going to reverse roles now because <laughs> much as you got a lot more out of coming to america than what i did i got a lot more out of the witches than what you did it this had bob zemeckis all over it and we mentioned bob zemeckis earlier in the news section and i said that he brings in energy to films he brings a vibrancy and it is energetic and vibrant and that's what i got from this i wasn't going to watch this to compare it to the original adaptation of the witches i didn't want to do that i wanted to watch it for itself and i found a lot of enjoyment it wasn't as bad as i expected uh, there's essences of del toro's involvement in the story of it um, yeah, yeah you can scripting. see that and zemeckis's vis like visual energy added to the proceedings lifted it but anne hathaway relishing every moment on screen drew me in and overall i found it a pretty fun family film that retained some of the moralistic message of the actual story that it's adapted from. I quite enjoyed it. I was expecting to dislike it as much as you did. I was expecting to think, oh, how dare they do this to Dahl? But I actually got caught up in it and ran with it. This might have been because I had watched Coming to America the day before, so my expectations of films had been really lowered. But The Witches gets, it gets a thumbs up from me. It doesn't get a five out of five, but it's a good like three out of five film. It's got something there to carry it along. And people who've never experienced the original film will probably lap this up a lot more. What else have you got for us? I've also seen um, a documentary called Pele. Okay, because I know you're not a massive football fan. It, well, a good documentary shouldn't need you to be a fan of the subject 
in order to like it. I mean, I, I know people who've watched uh, Metallica's Some Kind of Monster who hate heavy metal, but they were fascinated by the story of that film uh, because it's engaging, it's capturing a moment in time. And I've watched sporting documentaries that I've fallen for despite not being a fan of them. But this one is the worst example of a puff piece documentary that I've watched in a long while. It pulls all the usual archive footage from the bag, but doesn't do anything noteworthy with it. And all it serves to do is highlight how boringly plain Pele actually was when off the pitch, even when his country is going through political upheaval, which could have been an interesting approach for the film to have taken. He's just dull as dishwater. All the interviews while his country is getting ripped apart by politics. He was so dull. And I just generally think after watching this, Wow. And it's so lucky that he was a good footballer because he'd have got nowhere in life without it. He is such a bland, uninteresting person. I have no interest in actually seeing anything else to do with Pele after watching this because, man, I almost fell asleep when he was talking. It's not worth watching. It's not a good documentary. Um, I did watch another film this morning before I came on air, which I want to quickly mention. And that's a Netflix film called Red Dot. It's a Swedish film about a couple going on a hiking trip to rekindle their marriage, but find themselves fleeing for their lives in the wilderness from an unknown shooter who's hunting them down. And I popped it on just as like a distraction. It's like, let's what I mean, how you can get distracted when you've got to read the subtitles, I don't know. But I did it and I was caught up in it. And I thought it was a nice, well-paced, chilling story with a few little twists in it I, i've seen the trailer for this and and I, I must admit i did look um it did look intriguing i didn't realize it was subtitled that wasn't what put me off um i'm glad i, I it's one of those films that i needed to hear someone say they liked it before i watched it because I've, I've invested time or started to invest time on stuff on netflix where without much reference and then get 20 minutes in and going, this is not going to be the film for me. But I'll give that a shot. I'll give that a shot on your recommendation. If I'm being completely honest, my choosing this to watch was part of my trying to fill in my world map on Letterboxd. And it needed to get Sweden filled in. And then that popped up. It was like, excellent, I've got Sweden. <laughs> but I was glad I picked that one. Quite enjoyed it. Um, other films coming up over the next week that have caught me eye. Now, there's one that I've watched a few times, but I'm just going to mention it here because I think everyone should watch it. Edge of Tomorrow, Tom Cruise, action film, where he does a groundhog day. You know my love for that film. That drops on Amazon this weekend. Uh, the Sisters Brothers, the 2018 Western crime drama with John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, lands on Netflix this yeah, weekend. Yeah, looking forward to that one. And as you've already mentioned in the news earlier, Cherry the Tom Holland starring crime film from the Russos based on the novel of the same name by Nico Walker lands on Apple TV in this coming week. Looking forward to that one. If you've been following the show, you know, over the last uh, eight weeks, isn't it? Seven weeks, we have been discussing WandaVision. And this week, WandaVision gave us the series finale and what a finale it is. We've invested... Um, time and energy into the lives of Wanda and the Vision. Uh, there's been a huge slew of fan theories, but what I thought the ending did so well is it didn't give you any of the fan theories whatsoever <laughs> and told the story that they wanted to tell in the way that the writers and the MCU wanted to tell. And what we got, uh, quite astoundingly, has been a series that at every point has told you what it's doing. And that's been a series about grief and, and loss, uh, and which I think for a 
comic book series and the first of its comic book series was quite a bold move by the end of it. Andy, did you were you taken by the last episode? Yes, very much so. I mean, the bits of the last episode that I thought, yeah, I'm not that bothered with them, were actually the action bits. Yeah, it was an act three, wasn't it? Yeah, they just felt unnecessary because, like you say, the, the whole series was an exploration of grief and loss more than anything else. I love the fact all our theories were completely wrong. I mean, we've been guilty of it ourselves on on this show. We've spoken yeah. about our theories as like, oh, Mephisto. Oh, as they are. Uh, no, everything was completely wrong. We were reading too much into things. And that's a problem with the fan base, not with the show. The show told a beautiful story. It all made sense. If you go back and rewatch it from the beginning now, you can see that any theories that you were pulling off, you were pulling out a thin air because it wasn't necessary. The only one that... You can kind of say, ah, they misled us with that, was the casting of Pietro. That was the only one that was stunt casting to try to make you come up with theories. Everything else was just coming out of nowhere. I I agree with you. And then I I kind of sussed out why they did that. And everything was about being this sort of sitcom world. And we know why Wanda was invested in this sitcom world, because of all the tragedy that came from her life. And my thoughts on it were, I I heard an interview with the, the director of the series, uh, and, it, and it just played into that sitcom theory where characters would reappear, completely recast, and the audience would accept them. So, yes, they did at that point take us up the garden path. The reasoning from what I understand makes absolutely perfect sense. But, yeah, if you were a big fan of Bewitched or Roseanne or any of those series, characters got replaced. Uh, <laughs> and the next season they would come back with a different Darren. And I think that's the term it is now, the diff- a different Darren. Yep. And so... Uh, uh, that's what I think. They think they played into the meta-ness of it. Yeah, that was my my only disappointment, a bit like you. But I think again, that was because I built it up to be a bit of a bit of my own speculation and fan theory, and and it wasn't that at all because it, it wasn't that necessary. And I think if they had brought Aaron Taylor Johnson back, then you'd have had two you'd have had two reincarnations, and, and that point where I think you might have, have, have overstretched the idea of grief. So it worked. It worked pretty well. But if, if anything, that was that was the the only blip on it. I agree with you about the action sequences, but it was Act Three of a of a Marvel a Marvel movie at the end of the day, and you have to have an action sequence. But I, I like the fact that that Vision's fight with White Vision yeah. then became something of that became almost two thousand and one by two characters talking about the meaning of reality. <laughs> yeah, it was it was metaphysical and uh, psychological rather than fisticuffs it was them just discussing purposes it was great i loved it and i loved that white vision was uh, given access back to the memories that have been stored in his circuits so he is now being given a deluge of his past life that he now needs to process and that's going to pay that's going to come back up sometime down along with marvel we also got thanks to the end of end credit stings there was two this week the last one giving us the dark hold uh, the Wanda is still studying and she's learned to astral project. So that is where it's going to play into Doctor Strange, clearly. We can't talk about this episode without talking about probably its its most heartbreaking, heartbreaking scenes. And that's when she, Wanda and Vision, and, and let's put it off to, to Bethany and Olsen, they played it. They played it to the hilt, knowing what's coming, uh, tucking in the boys into bed for that one last time as the red glow of the shrinking boundary line of, of, of reality 
edge closer to, to home and the goodbye. And I thought that was absolutely was fantastic. And at that point, hey, we didn't need Mephisto. We didn't need no. uh we didn't need a big payoff. We didn't need the appearance of Doctor Strange and all the fan theories that went with it. It was it was a beautiful ending and you know for for a woman who's lost so much as a character and we found out why she did it. Um, and she, well, she wasn't the hero of her story when she walks out of that town and how the town hated her. Yeah. Um, you know, she's, she did it for, for selfish reasons. And, and, it, and it suddenly all made sense of what the series is about. If you're going to create uh, create your own reality and not say goodbye to the ones you love after they've passed, then you, your world will will crumble. And it was about having to say goodbye. And that, that last line, it choked me. It really did. This series has changed one of my opinions from previous MCU. Yeah. Civil War, I was always firmly on the side of Captain America. Now I can kind of see where Tony was coming from, that the Sokovia Accords maybe should have been put in place because Wanda has proven that she was far too powerful to control her own powers. And I think that's one of the clever things. It's, it's made me realize that when they were pushing for the regulation of the Accords, this is why, because people could see that this could have happened. And it happened because the grief that heroes will encounter throughout their lives, they will always encounter loss. And any of them could break at any moment and become the villain. Absolutely brilliant series. It's a shame that so many fans online are not getting it and are getting yeah. upset that their theory wasn't right. And we get back to this whole toxic fandom element that every, I mean, we said at the head of the show in the news, I always have my little digs at the DC fandom because, you know, they're an easy target. But, it's the same with Star Trek. It's the same with Star Wars. It's the same with Marvel. It's the same with Game of Thrones. Every fandom has its toxic elements that don't want what is presented in front of them. They want what they believe is in their heads. Absolutely. And I saw some some bashing on, on Twitter. And I don't get involved because I'm, I feel morally superior. Uh, I don't feel I need to put that into my life. But I saw some bashing of people who clearly enjoyed the episode. And yeah. they were told that they were wrong to enjoy it because um, uh, uh, they'd been duped by by Marvel, or they'd been duped into into liking something that was lesser, uh, and and they were wrong for liking something. No one ever ever tells me that I'm wrong for liking anything. I like it for the same reasons I like music, I like art. It's such a personal thing. Uh, what I've enjoyed about about this more than anything else, uh, and 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 you know what, and this is where it becomes meta because it's a it's a series about television and sitting with your loved ones and and watching tv and what that means to you and this is what this series has been about for me it's about being sitting with my partner who has no idea about the the mcu and my little boy who i could stop and say did you see the hydra reference there and and enjoy it so no one can tell me that i didn't enjoy it um i think as 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 time goes on and it and it and it settles into the memory banks. I will go back and, and rewatch it at some point. Uh, we've got just over a week before we get to encounter the next stage of Marvel's MCU with Falcon and Winter Soldier. So expect us to be talking about Falcon and Winter Soldier in upcoming episodes as that gets released weekly as well. And that's about it for this week. But as you know, before we go, we can't help but talk about our neat thing before you turn off in shock and horror. Our neat things are things that we've loved over the last week, whether it be a film, TV series, a game, a book, anything that we think is neat. And Andy, 
always goes first because I have to think about what my neat thing is. <laughs> so my neat thing this week is uh, BritBox, which has become quite a regular thing for me to spin round to uh, for neat things. And all six seasons of Drop the Dead Donkey have landed on there. Oh, now there's a series I liked. For those who don't know what Drop the Dead Donkey was, it's a comedy series set in a fictional news company run by a Rupert Murdoch-esque exploitative media mogul. It ran for six seasons and it was known for being cutting edge because they filmed the episodes in the week leading up to the episode being shown. So it used actual breaking news items as part of the comedy script. In addition, on the day of screening, they would do an end credit voiceover chat between a couple of characters to talk about other breaking news right up to that moment. So it's completely up to date. And what's great about catching the reruns of this on BritBox at the moment, but in the past whenever they've done reruns, is that before the episode starts, they did a This Week in the News roundup so that you knew the events that were being referenced. And I've been sat watching the first season on BritBox over this past few days and absolutely loving it. I straight away know what news items they're talking about because of that roundup. And the comedy still feels fresh. It still feels engaging. And it still feels... Well, actually, the news media hasn't moved on much further than what it was when it was being satirised back here. So it still feels relevant to today. Great series. Well worth checking out. My neat thing is, is actually the roadmap because I'm starting to feel, and the roadmap is the roadmap out of uh, out of COVID lockdown, because I've started to feel and started to see that, that gigs are starting to come back and there is a sense that we are moving forward after the last few months, which have been really hard for for, for, for most of us, and especially those of us who, who've abided by as much of the rules as, as possible. And for the first time, I think there's a sense that we might be getting through this thing and there's a, a real confidence back in the markets. There's real confidence as I've actually started booking gigs again for, for later in the year. And you don't do that 50-50, are they going to land or not? It's, um, it's, it's neat that the world, with a bit of luck, fingers crossed, I'm, I'm still playing it safe the roadmap seems to be working. And that's it for this week. We'll see you again next week with another episode of The Film File. But remember, you don't have to say goodbye when you can say hello. Hello.